Hello out there on the internet, I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. America and political violence, well, they go together like George Lincoln Rockwell in a corncob pipe. There's a growing movement in the U.S., one that's spreading online and probably in some of your neighborhoods. Far-right extremist movements have a deep history in America, and wouldn't it be nice... There's some way to learn about all this history in an entertaining yet informative way. What if there were a new podcast, say, on Spotify maybe, that does a comprehensive job of breaking down the history of the movement and trying... Yeah. That does a comprehensive job of breaking down the movement and tying it into current events with a view towards the future. Well, it just so happens that there is such a podcast. It's called American Terror, and it's hosted by a familiar voice... Vice News correspondent and founding host of Cyber, Ben Maku. Ben, how are you doing? I'm good. I was like, I, I know that music. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, I, I helped make that. And actually, the producer, one of the producers on American Terror, Sophie Cases, shout out, gang gang. She and I, and she, I mean, she made it. She made the opening cyber credit. Um, and I gave her my like non-musical unmusical uh theory of what it should sound like and she made it wonderful so well with that in mind what is this new show and why did you abandon us to go and make it (laughs) well it was i mean like you said it's a really comprehensive look at the history of this movement and breaking it down and that's something i mean everybody that i've worked with on this jason would know this and uh emmanuel uh, one of the things i've always really prized about this beat is knowing the history of it and where it comes from. And that it's not just this sort of, I think there was this perspective that once Donald Trump was elected in 2016, suddenly Nazis and the far right were allowed to be public. But the reality is this is something that's been going on for a very, very long time. goes back, I would say in, in, in this organized way back to the civil war and the post-civil war era and the formation of the Ku Klux Klan And I thought, you know, if someone's going to pay me to do this, I would love to do a big history podcast on this. Also, I'm I am a history nerd. I love history. So this was like one of my my, one of my shots at being um, like that guy from Hardcore History, Dan, whatever. I love that. Dan, I love that podcast as well. Oh, my God. It's good. Remind me uh, when we're off the air. And I know this is just terrible for the listeners to hear, but I'm going to tell you a Dan Carlin story uh, that's not for air. (laughs) After this. Okay, so it's not good. Oh, no, it's a good story, but it's just one I can't put out in public. Okay, yeah, listeners. Right, gotcha. Yeah, how do you feel have about you, that? If you're friends with him, you got to tell him to like listen to my podcast because I uh, would uh, probably uh, scream. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> I'd probably gush because I, I, man, I listened to the World War One one. Oh, like, yeah. That's the one that got everybody. Dude, I listened, I think. I, I, it was so good. Yeah. I, the one on Julius Caesar was amazing. It's just like, that's when I knew I was like migrating into dad core. Like I was like, damn, I love Dan Carlin. I love war. At some point I got to pick a war that I'm obsessed with that I bring up at dinner parties. Right. Right. It can't be world wars too, because that's been done. <laughs> no, I think I make it, I think there's a good case for world war one. Right. 
because there's so like yeah, so like much cool. so much sets so it sets the stage for so much. There's a new All Quiet on the Western Front movie on Netflix right now, so you can use that as I your know. intro. Right? I haven't watched it yet, but I'm excited. Two of my great grandpas were in World War One as well. Oh wow. Mine uh one, one fought in the in the the uh the frozen war with the Austrians in the mountains of Italy and was captured and was a POW for like two years or something. My uh my family histories don't go back far enough for us to uh for us to know beyond like World War Two. It's it's sad. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's a lot of like there's stuff there's stuff on my dad's side, but uh my mom's side it's like um I hope she doesn't hear this, but it's uh like Cherokee and the white trash that lived next to the Cherokee and they're intermingling and like you don't ever really know like what family stories are true and there's not a lot of records. Right. So it's like Well, all my family was in Europe and Catholic, so there was there's so <laughs> many the, inevitably then you have records of everything, but I'm a World War One family, World War Two, both my grandfathers. Yeah, I did. World War II. I did get to hear the World War II stories from my grandfather. Uh, he was in the cool. he was in the Pacific, so I got to see like all the pictures oh, wow. and hear the stories. And yeah, it was yeah, yes. <laughs> I mean, all the theaters were brutal, but uh, the the Pacific was a was like a spe- like a very special kind of awful. Um, but we're here to talk about yes. yes the history of of white power of white power in America, which is actually intimately tied in with, I would say world war one and world war two. Yeah, right. In fact, I would say what we're discussing is, is precisely part of this podcast as well. And it was, it was again, like something that I, there's an amazing book by historian uh, called bring the war home. Her name is Kathleen Ballou. She's a professor at Northwestern. We interview her for this podcast and it's essentially about how to paraphrase it. Essentially how every single major war in American history Dating back to the Civil War, there are there are massive spikes in extremist violence and groups, and this happens for there's a there's a couple of reasons why this happens. One, just the, the sort of paralyzing, broad experience of violence does something to American society, but also you have many many veterans coming home, and not only do they have soldiering skills and this you know these experiences fighting, but they kind of are known to create organizations. And in this case, we, we follow, I mean, I, people in this, uh, that listen to cyber will not be surprised to know that we did a podcast on the base because we did a pilot basically for cyber on the base and some of the tapes that we had. So that, that we, we, to talk about all the history, we, we fast forward to the present day era and the war on terror and how that has also spiked so many of these groups. And of course, Jan six, which was there was many people with quote military backgrounds involved. I think it was over 160. So yeah, it's, um, it's a history heavy podcast, but also a very in the now set podcast. Right. So I I think I would say that first episode, the first episode really kind of sets the stage for what's going on now. Right. Cause it's about the base. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I know we've talked about it on the show before, but I really want to like mm-hmm. hammer this thing home for people that, that kind of don't know. So I think there's a lot of you're, 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 you're at home. You're talking to your, your parents. They're like, Oh, all this white nationalist stuff is nonsense and everything's fine. Mm-hmm. And like, we don't ever see it. Blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, you've got some real scary audio. Um, mm-hmm. and, these people are tied to actual crimes that have been committed or attempted. Um, can you 
give us like the 101 version of the base and who they are and where they're at right now? Sure. So the base is a neo-Nazi accelerationist organization. It's a designated terrorist group in, I believe, four or five countries now. Uh, it was founded by a man named Ronaldo Nazaro, who is a former Pentagon contractor, and he was actually a targeter for what sounds like the intelligence community during the war on terror. So he was actually helping drone strikes on terrorist uh, targets. Uh, it was formed sometime in 2018. At the height, it had about 50 members. This group is deeply steeped in neo-Nazi ideologies. So it believes in stuff like the Turner Diaries, uh, another book called Siege, uh, which is essentially just an insurgency manual for the white nationalist movement. Now, this group was very secretive and predominantly organized online inside of chat groups, and they separated themselves based on cells across the U.S., they eventually were tied to several crimes and the FBI undertook a nationwide counterterrorism probe against them. And about, I think it's actually the numbers like 14 or 15 now, but 14 or 15 of them were picked up in law enforcement operations uh, now serving over a hundred years. I think it actually might be 200 now. <laughs> uh, if we did our calculations, right. Um, and they did stuff like a, an assassination plot, mass shooting plots, uh, bombings, things like that. But the FBI, through the work of one, possibly two undercovers and an anti-fascist infiltrator, were able to disrupt it and stop it. And this happened probably mostly just during 2020 and 2021. And it was right at the crest of sort of the Jan 6 stuff. But what makes this this podcast, I think, very interesting is that we give you a real behind-the-scenes look at how these groups operate and how they talk to each other and what their goals are and how some of this more extremist ideology has seeped its way into the mainstream media, which I think is, is, is for myself and Mac Lemmer, who reported on this group together way back in 2018 and up until now, that was the most shocking thing, to see things like great replacement theory and, you know, People saying, like, give them, give the rope to Nancy Pelosi, which is, you know, an allusion to the day of the rope, which is a Turner Diaries reference. And if, for the uninitiated, Turner Diaries is exactly what Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, was obsessed with. And it was sort of this Nazi manual. So seeing this stuff go into the mainstream was, was a really crazy thing. As of what they are right now, they apparently still exist. They are a shadow of what they were, as far as I'm, as I understand it. They, I think the last time I, I, I had more insight, there was, I think, less than 15 members, but they continue to call for the murders of, of, uh, of Democrat politicians. Uh, and I do believe that they're pretty, pretty active to some regard in the United States. Uh, as for abroad, I, I don't think so. But, and Ronaldo Nazaro's, I don't think he's any, no longer the leader. Yeah, this is a.k.a. Norman Spear. Is that his? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Norman Spear, Roman Wolf. Yeah, he went by aliases and a reporter at The Guardian, Jason Wilson, uh, was able to figure out his identity in, I believe, January 2020. And then from then, I, I dug about a bunch of stuff out on his background, which which we get into. Um, and it's pretty interesting that someone who worked sort of in the in the in some of the more secretive machinations of the war on terror then founded an American terrorist organization that saw the U S government as its top enemy. 
<laughs> yeah, it was kind of I was fascinated by this. Listening to the audio and kind of uh, in, in that first episode, it really sounds like they're mirroring uh, some of those global war on terror groups, right? That they were yeah, monitoring. Absolutely. I, I think like, you know, it, it's something that I think people in in this reporting and in academic circles and analyst circles try to to veer away from at times because I think it reduces the sort of the complexity of these organizations. But to me, I, I, I reported very closely on ISIS and Al Qaeda in the past. I mean, I, I was really well known for that. And these organizations are structured almost exactly the same. I mean, without sort of an active war zone, which I think they actually do have an active war zone now to 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 pull from in terms of sending foreign fighters places. But the idea of uh, of the way that ISIS and Al Qaeda operated, they had ideologies, they had a worldview, they had literature, they had meetings to discuss that ideology and that literature. They saw it as a as a as a long term mission. They didn't see things in sort of these like let's go let's go to a let's go to a, a, a an LGBTQ plus safe space club and beat people up. Like this is much more like how do we assassinate a government official? If we were to take over an area, how do we do it? How do we hasten the collapse of the U.S. government and build a white ethno state in its ashes? So it's it's it was much more, very much in the same way uh, as you'd see AQ and ISIS sort of formulating themselves, and and I think it, they're pulling from the same kind of disgruntled, angry young man as well. I mean, the ideologies are obviously both very far right conservative. Right. And the target is this kind of, uh, disaffected, extremely online, you know, what's the word not in education, not employed dude. Right. Well, actually I would say, you know, like the base and Adam Waffen division, which is another sort of sister organization to it, they were pulling much more from your kind of like intellectual Nazi, you know, they wanted the, they wanted the type of guy who was in the military, uh, became deeply radical and racist, but, you know, could read a book because again, like the barrier for not as low as some of these other groups. It's like, you can't just be like, I'm angry and hate other people. You have to have this neo-Nazi worldview that is steeped in literature, you know, like literally steeped in literature. You have to understand the, the book siege. You have to understand the Turner diaries. And there's other ones as well that are even more fringe, right? They're asking but to have that. Like they had a book club, you know, I think it's actually one of the episodes we, we do is they, they literally episode three episode, episode three. Is three book yeah. Club. Yeah. Uh, this so- was like, they literally discussed what they would have like reading nights, <laughs> right? It's the, um, it's the, it's funny you say that because I'm remembering them asking, like, do you work out? Are you healthy? Yeah. What's your experience? You know, they're, uh, it's almost yeah. like a job interview. Yeah, it is. It's like, it's literally like a job interview for, for a terrorist organization. That's kind of how I described it. I mean, that's what I always found so fascinating was you really got an understanding what these people were like, what they were looking for. And to me, the other thing too, is there's sort of this mundanity of evil that goes along with this. I think a lot of people think these groups are just so scary and the worst. And you're like, well, for one, the way that they talk about these things is very casual. And two, sometimes they just talk about like, like the type of stuff they're going to barbecue when they all get together, you know? And like, 
they they provide support for each other when you know they they have stuff like bad breakups like it's it's you know it's i think it's important to sort of unmask some of the stuff so that it's not just even so people understand it's not just the complex it's much more complex than just the simple like oh the the, the sort of the al-qaeda right idea of these groups you know it's like no they provide each other something and they kind of are unfortunately well thought out well, and there's a big difference between a bunch of guys packed into the back of a U-Haul trying to go break up an LGBT event and mm-hmm. people that are meeting online and in reading books and having these discussions about accelerationism and the end of America, right? There's a big, mm-hmm. there's a pretty big gap there, I think. There is, there is. And you know, the other thing too is that I, I've tried to explain to people is much in the same way that like you had like Al-Qaeda had their one of their, t- their top goals was essentially to like, to, um, to expel the U S uh, corporatist interests from the middle East. But mostly it was just, they, they wanted these, they wanted the middle East to be less client States to, to the U S and, and their anger was towards the U S government for sort of exploiting the working person in those, in these regions, the base and these other groups, one of the things they hated with the U S government is that they're destroying the environment. they, inequalities on the rise like it's things that like people in in every walk of life uh race color creed that would would uh, could agree on right so a lot of these grievances that some of these groups have that's how they kind of get people in right it's not just like oh you hate the jewish people it's like no like you are you're downtrodden on your job the job isn't what you were promised in your mind uh, the environment and the drinking water in your region is is going to shit. Uh, by the way, do you also hate Jewish people because they're making this happen? So there's a lot of like weird political ideology, I think, that, that gets mixed into this. And I think, like I said, I think the goal of the podcast was to really kind of get behind this and show what, what it's about. All right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, cyber listeners, welcome back. We're on with Ben Maku talking about his new podcast, American terror. So you've got like a lot of, there's a lot of wild stuff in here. Uh, I've got to like, I think I maybe have already said, I kind of have a freshman one-on-one understanding of all this stuff. You know, I know I can talk about like the Ku Klux Klan in Dallas in the 1920s and it's political mm-hmm. power there. And the silver shirt league, but you tell the story in the second episode that is something I had never heard of before. Uh, oh, yeah, the CSA. The CSA. What? What? What is the CSA? And who is this guy that you interviewed? Oh, Carrie Noble. I always forget the Covenant of the Sword, and the I always CSA. Carrie Noble was one of the was basically the number two of this organization, the CSA. Let me just get this uh, the name. It comes from the Arm of the Lord. Yeah. There's so many, there's so many groups and so many. many Yeah. So Carrie Noble is a really interesting character. And I mean that not as like a character in a, in a movie, like 
his character is very, it's interesting. Um, sort of one of these ex extremists. And this is sort of a cottage industry as I'm sure even you're aware of that, Matt, Matthew, uh, of these ex extremists who come out and sort of denounce what they've done. And they provide all this evidence. Now, oftentimes I think a lot of these people are full of shit. Another mirror to Al Qaeda and ISIS, right? This is another thing. Exactly. Another mirror to Al Qaeda and ISIS. Absolutely. And sometimes it's a grift. Like sometimes it's legit a grift. They're trying to get jobs and work. And other times they're very genuine and they're really trying to, trying to stop what they've done. And, and help. And, and I'm not, that's not to say every former I've ever met. It's like that, but there are some grifters out there. So this guy in particular was one of the very first and he, uh, of sort of this neo-Nazi accelerationist groups, uh, kind of the sort covenant of the sword of the arm of the Lord was this sort of Christian far right neo-Nazi group that settled in Arkansas and created a, a community, a compound of uh, all white community where they not only sort of had their own business and industry, but they also had schools and raised their children together and also got really, really armed. Now, this organization aligned itself to another infamous one called The Order, which is which is a lot of people might know that if you know your sort of your American Nazi history. They were a terrorist organization in, in the early to mid 80s. They also did a bunch of bank robberies. Uh they were led by a guy named Bob Matthews, who was a pretty insane individual who ended up dying in a massive shootout with the FBI. But the CSA was one of these groups. And that episode sort of tells the story of, of Kerry No, but how not only did the group get radicalized and become more and more neo-Nazi, but how they eventually ended up, you know, in a massive standoff with the FBI, uh, and and how many of them went to jail and then how there was this thing called the sedition trial of 89 which was essentially the fbi and the doj trying to try uh i believe it was like 14 groups it was one of the first sedition trials in in like 100 years yeah 100 years yeah yeah and it was essentially trying that there was a conspiracy against the u.s government on the neo-nazi far right that there was several organizations that had come together to declare war on the U S government. Now that did not go so well. I watch or watch, listen to the podcast and you'll kind of get the full story, but it sets the stage for how the DOJ and the American government would legally go after these types of operators, these types of, of, uh, of, of organizations that we're seeing today. Uh, and I don't have to, I don't want to, um, pull the what was it give away the the, the juice but right um, you want people to listen to the episode there is a sedition trial now and we kind of tee that up and why that happened and, and i think a lot of people would not would not even know about this trial in 89 and and would be shocked that it happened and that coverage it got too is the other thing that's the thing for me as a journalist i watch it i'm just like i can't believe the coverage of this is insane well, I can't believe that I had never because this is something that like I I'm interested in. I, I research. I talk to people about, um, but like Ruby Ridge, Waco, these things loom so large in our minds from that era, and I had not heard of this. Why mm-hmm. do you think? Am I just is this just a blind spot, or do you think that this is a thing that has been memory hold a little bit? I think it's memory hold. Um, I also just think 
there was this period where I think the white, the predominantly media was complicit in this in sort of downplaying the hardcore violent elements of white nationalism that were so apparent and obvious for so long. And then we're, we're doubly overshadowed with, you know, we talked about it already, but the war on terror that lasted, I mean, it's still going on today in, in many ways that lasted for 20 years and sort of the, the monopolization of terrorism in the eyes of journalism being only undertaken by jihadist organizations. So we look back, I mean, like even Oklahoma city, people think of that as just like a lone wolf, like one guy. It's like, no, no, no. Like, Timothy McVeigh was a hardcore neo-Nazi connected to some of the most neo-Nazi organizations and communities of that period. And the FBI knew it too. And if you look at something like the sedition trial, it was the same thing. And it, like I said, I was talking about the, the, the coverage of it. The coverage of it is crazy. They're giving like sort of these like platforms, these, these organizations and really making them seem like they're very legitimate. And you realize like some of these are like Klansmen. And they kind of covered how triumphant these organizations were when they, when they won. <laughs> so I think looking back, a lot of that has to do with the media portrayal of it and sort of the, the ignorance that we had uh, when we were, were covering, covering violent militant neo-Nazis. It's, it's, strange, it's crazy how it's, how it's seen today. Yeah, let's get into that a little bit because I, I'm constantly interested in um... – how we cover this stuff, how we do it responsibly and uh, how we continue to talk about it with while maintaining like the very American value of free speech and not Mm -hmm. violate that. I'm interested in the tensions kind of around this in regards to like reporting on and talking about white nationalism and extremist movements in particular, like how do you navigate it? Well, I think one of the things that's interesting is how, you know, people say in media how we learned how to report on this stuff a little bit better or how actually how people look back on how they reported on Trump and how the media was very responsible for, you know, televising his rallies and letting them just go on for hours and not, you know, not providing any context to the reporting of it. And then how now they're like, well, we wouldn't just put a Trump rally up on CNN anymore and let it play for 25 minutes. We would say we'd flash a clip of it and say that he lied a bunch of times and then move on. I think in many ways it's similar to this because I think reporting on extremism a lot, I think a lot of we've been doing it, I think responsibly for a really long time. Um, but a lot of organizations are learning that, but I think at the bare, at the bare minimum of this, you, if you're going to report on extremism, you have to unfortunately talk to extremists and you have to understand what they're doing. Now, how do you, how do you weigh whether or not you should? I, I for one, look at it as, is there a public interest in this information being out there? Is there a public safety interest in this information being out there? Because ultimately when you're reporting on these groups, you are giving them a a modicum of advertising. You're doing some popularity for them. Now, how, how will that, what's the benefit, you know? And for me, when it was the base, it was, these were groups that were very clearly trying to kill people, and that was their goal. And they were committing crimes. And we knew they were. You know, they, they ferried this ex-Canadian soldier across the border illegally and were like harboring him from authorities. We knew that was happening. Now, when you have something like that, you have to report on it because it's, it's there's a public safety interest in it. So 
you know, and ultimately, like I said, like 14 to 15 guys end up being, being arrested by the FBI. Like this is not, these are the groups you have to, you have to take a look at. So, I mean, to long story short, it's a complicated question and you have to constantly be interrogating it as to why you're, you're talking to these people. And I think it's important. And, and it's also like, you don't just say like, Hey, the base put out propaganda. Here's their video. You know, you what have ab- to be careful. What about, uh, do you think Mike Wallace was careful when he was in, he was talking to William Luther Pierce, author of the Turner diaries? You know, it was funny. We listened to that interview and it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be because it's, you know, that was done in William Luther Pierce, author of the Turner diaries, but he was talked to you because of his connections to the Oklahoma, Oklahoma city bombing. Mm-hmm. It was like a Six months after it happened. McVeigh was very loud about his appreciation for the book. Yeah. And Mike Wallace, being a former 60 Minutes correspondent, interviewed William Luther Pierce about it. I actually got to say, I think I the, the, the thing I was most shocked by is how responsible he was. Because he really did interrogate the guy properly and didn't allow him to just sort of spout off. And there was a reason why he was speaking to him. He had to, you know. This guy was the author of this thing that was responsible for the worst act in, act of terrorism in American history at that time. You know, do you think like, the, what do you do? You don't do you think the book's responsible or do you think McVeigh's responsible? Oh, I think McVeigh's ultimately responsible. But like, you know, as well as I do, it, 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 he was mimicking one of the actual acts in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Turner Diaries. And he built the same bomb. Yep. It's that in that Pierce, uh, a scientist who worked at Los Alamos at one point wrote in careful detail how to make it in that book. And McVeigh literally reproduced it to bomb the Alfred P. Murrow building. What then do we do about something like, the- Oh, which by the way, was also a target of the order and uh, the CSA as a potential terrorist attack in 1983. It's like she goes to show you how closely McVeigh was connected to that movement, that violent neo-Nazi movement. That building that he bombed was pinpointed as a target by these groups a decade and a bit and change (laughs) before he actually did it. What do you think that we do about stuff like the Turner Diaries? Do why? I mean, it's, I know what do we do about it. Yeah. Like it's out there, right? It's out there. It's out there yeah. Is this, do you think that there's any worth, I guess what I'm asking is I'm trying to think of how to ask this very carefully because it's something I'm thinking about constantly um, because we see this push, I think on the right and, and also on the left in certain circles to take a, like get rid of books and people that we think are, are dangerous and bad Turner diaries being obviously, as you've just like outlined a horrifying worst case scenario, right? Is Turner diary something that we should maybe try to like purge or do we need, I I don't think you can. Yeah. Like it's like you, I mean, you work for motherboard and so did I at one point. (laughs) And like, you know, this is from well as I do like digitization of things. Like this is like both a curse and like a, a, a strong, uh, advantage to our, our present day society, but getting rid of something and banning it is almost impossible. I mean, I think what, what we should do is what we have been doing. I think society writ large is trying to make it harder to get these things, you know, like to get these books, 
like Amazon should be banning it should be banning the selling and fairing of it, you know, things like that. Cause you're never going to get rid of it. Like, you know, you know, uh, McVeigh got it. <laughs> I don't actually. He got it at a, he got it at gun shows. So he got a hold of it. Cause it was the Turner diaries was, was infamous on the gun show circuit of the U S so people would hand them out there. You could buy them there. And then he ended up going around selling it to people as well. And this is, you know, pre pre internet. That just makes me or, think that it's I not going to an nascent point of it. That's that, just, that just makes me think it's not going to go away. Right? No, it's not going to go away. But I think the thing is, it's actually like, it's to educate people against it. And then mm-hmm, also mm-hmm. to make it difficult to get, it's like, it's not really, you can't go to the local, uh, the local shop and buy Mein Kampf. You know, you could, I, if I need to read Mein Kampf, I can do it, which I have. You had to read that in high school. Really? Yeah. Yeah. We did, uh, at a very interesting English class in like 10th grade, I think. Uh, and we did, was your English teacher? Oh, he was very strange. We did, uh, cause we'd read Mein Kampf. We read the communist manifesto. Uh, that is fucking nuts. We read slaughterhouse five and catch 22. <laughs> okay. I read all of those in, in, in high school. Except I don't think, I don't think that we were assigned the Communist Manifesto, or I mean, definitely not Mein Kampf. Yeah, that, um, it was. He was like, you have to understand World War II, and both of these texts are integral to that understanding of World War II. And we had. To, I, I remember. He's right, but are, are you really equipped at like fifteen to understand that? Fuck no, <laughs> fuck no. But like, no, I don't think I was. I definitely read the Communist Manifesto when I was that age. But I also was like a little socialist. So one's way shorter than the other two, right? <laughs> yeah. Also, one one is still fire, and the other ones are decidedly fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, mine sucks, but like, it's also laborious to get through and just like somebody's you can tell that 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 Marx had like a background in storytelling and uh, newspaper journalism and knew how to concisely make his points and uh Hitler yeah, was a guy in short and it's and it's like uh man you like it's the other thing too I think that people forget about the communist manifesto because I reread it recently and it's people forget how much of an anti-colonialist text it is it's truly a very, very anti-colonialist test text that I think is a, an interesting thing that people don't talk about enough, but yes, a very effective writer, effective storyteller. Um, Mein Kampf is just like, ugh. it's ramblings. It's brutal. It's, it's mad person. ramblings. It, it is. It truly is. And it's like, you can kind of see why people are like, Oh yeah, like, like, I'm angry too. This is true. Um, it's kind of like the Turner Diaries, except I, what did I say in the podcast? How to describe the Turner Diaries? I kind of go in on it. Yeah. 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 It was, it's like, it, yeah, it's got like, it's fucking brutal. So horribly written, but it also has like, yeah, yeah. That was the line. I said, it has like the pizzazz of like a high school chemistry textbook. It feels like, um, it feels like a post almost. It, oh, it does. You know, it does. it's just, it's more like, bro, like you, Fuck, this sucks. Yeah. I don't know how anyone reads it and goes like, this was amazing. But as I note in the podcast, the, the storyline, when you remove the ideology, is kind of fire. Like, it's like an underground terrorist organization fighting against a corrupt state and slowly bringing it down. 
right? Like you add all the others, like you add that in, that's basically like, what well, it's like star Wars. <laughs> like, it, you know what I mean? It's like, it tells the story of a just insurgency. Well, that's, that's that th- ultimately successful. We love that story, right? We love that story. And he utilized it. He created that. And, that, and except it's neo-Nazis and it's a, it's against a Jewish and black controlled state. So if you had that idea in your head that that was cool, this story is the story for you. Because if you read it, it's just like awful, just like the worst written thing of all time. But if you're really, you really buy into the storyline, you know, have you read, um, unintended consequences? Yes. Another McVeigh book. Mm -hmm. Um, let's say a family member reaches out just hypothetically, uh, Mm -hmm. purely hypothetically and says like, Hey, have you heard of this book? Unintended consequences. Do you think I should read it? Uh, how should one respond to that kind of thing? Um, how much do you love them? Very much. And hypothetically, if they're very close. If you're sorry, say it again. Hypothetically, purely hypothetically. hypothetically. Uh, how much would you, how much do you love them? I would say if you're very close to them and you care about them, I'd be like, you really like, I had a little cousin the other couple weeks ago tell me that like he had seen some Andrew Tate videos and I fucking shut it down. I was like, bro, no, do not watch that shit. That shit is fucked up. And he's like, why? I was like, I, he's like, I just saw it. I'm like, no, 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 no. That guy like ran like a doing some crazy sex crimes in Romania. And he's a terrible person. You should not listen to anything he says. And he's like, okay, all right, gotcha. I was like, never. So I think if it's like someone you really love, you got to just tell them and be like, no, man, that's bad. That is a bad, bad thing. And I love you and don't do that. Uh, and I just want to highlight what it is. It's it's kind of like it's. Would you say it's like less racist than Turner Diaries, but is still about murdering government officials, essentially about. And it's mostly about gun yeah, rights. I would say it's it's definitely because le- I mean the Turner Diaries are just like it's overtly racist, right? Whereas unintended con- consequences is not as it's not as steeped in that. Yeah, it's it's like a guy goes to a gun show or or, or a gun competition, embarrasses mm. an ATF agent in the competition by winning. Yeah, and then they try to wreck his life, and then start. Then like, there's a resistance against the ATF agents. Um, it's also interesting how much the ATF was like a major, yeah, point of interest for this group. I, well, it's because of the Ruby Ridge stuff, and right? Like, right, exactly. And yeah, like no. Like, no stellar organization there and well, and Waco, right. they've done yeah. like the ATF has done some real fucked up stuff. You know, let oh, me, yeah. let me ask you this then. Uh, Cause like I would, I get the impression from your reporting and from the history of this stuff that, that uh, the federal government seems pretty good at breaking this kind of thing up, like infiltrating it, disrupting it, destroying it. Do you think that's true? Uh, honestly, like, I remember talking about this with Tess Owen, who also reports on this for us, these types of worlds, but like the FBI has actually done a pretty effective job in the last few years going after organized uh, white nationalist organizations and terror groups like this. I mean, even the Jan six stuff is so sprawling. I mean, those are huge, huge undertakings. They've done a pretty good job. They really have at stopping this stuff. And I think, I think if you're looking at it, from the U S government hasn't been doing anything about this. I don't think I would level up that at the FBI. I think this is much more of a political overall question. I think the GOP is very clearly 
not interested in this, uh, which I think is very sad. Um, and it's pretty clear that they, they see it as a voting issue. You know, I think that they, they, they don't want to stop this because they just see it as cancel culture, even though these groups are like organizing and talking about killing people. Right. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 I would agree. I think the FBI has done a, they've done a good job. Yeah, I think that you can't uh, you can't talk about this thing in any kind of public forum. And there's that's the other thing is like you want to grow this organization, and you're always going to get one person in there who thinks that things go a little bit too far and seems to reach out. That seems to be repeatedly what happens, right? Or you know. You're, you're giving me the, you're giving me the maybe look. Yeah. They get sloppy. I think that's the bigger thing is that, you know, I think McVeigh was very successful because he kept it really small. Yeah. There's like, and any of the other groups that he was definitely in contact with were so secretive that they, they were to be trusted. Right. I think a lot of it has to do with like, I mean, the base is almost too public to succeed. Yeah. So like if I were starting one of these groups now, I wouldn't be on the internet and I wouldn't be advertising, which is funny because they were, there was this big push, uh, in the early days of these movements, there were people that saw the potential of the internet and were really like, this is the place we need to go to spread this message. These interconnected computers are going to be a big deal. Absolutely. Um, In fact, the, the white power movement were some of the, the trailblazers and, and political organization online. And it was something that I, like they believed in the internet and chat groups and spreading literature almost, I think it was like 1985. I can't remember what it was. It was like Liberty net. Yeah, I think so. I believe, um, which was set up as like this, this essentially this like online network of white power groups. All right. I've got, uh, I got to let you go. I could sit in here and talk to you about this stuff all day. Um, but tell me where or nukes. Yeah. <laughs> well, good also, Lord. There's been so much UFO shit. Oh, oh my, my God. God. Yeah. So good. Oh yes. Did you I follow the, it. my favorite one was the, um, did you follow the, the observatory in Kiv that was said that they were seeing UFOs yes. and published the report. And then, yeah, then the, the, the guy from Harvard, I think was like, you're in a war zone. <laughs> That's what you're seeing. It was anyway, we should do a whole episode on that. Um, yeah. Also, they the oh man, I just watched this amazing little doc on it. You ever seen Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix? Uh, uh, yes, I'm also they like the new version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen the I've seen the new one. I'm but like I always see Robert Stack in my head because that's what I grew up with. It's it's actually like it's really well produced. Mm-hmm. It's really well done, and they did one on the Michigan sighting in like 1995. I don't know if I know this one. It's like what? It's like uh, not Michigan. Sorry, yeah, Michigan, Western Michigan. Um, was it Michigan? Yeah, it was. It's Michigan. And um, it's incredible. It's really well done. And it's about how like they, the evidence for it was being monitored by this like national weather service radar guy. And he got, there's like over 300 witnesses to this UFO event. Eventually it was like, it was basically these, um, these, these orbs that, that we keep seeing mm-hmm, and how they were viewed all over Lake Michigan and they were going into, and they were going into like certain, um, certain small towns there. And then this cop calls the national weather service to talk to the radar guy. 
about if he's seen this and he starts seeing it and not only does he start seeing it, he starts observing what they're doing and he sees, he's able to tell you exactly what it is. And he's like, yeah, I observed that it was probably like an alloyed metal that was like going at at speeds of like 50,000 miles per hour. And he's, he was monitoring them literally going up and down in elevation, loitering in certain positions, going around Lake Michigan. And it's wild. You're just sort of like, this is, like, dude, the like the shit is so real. I'm thinking this is so terrifying. And also, something I learned from it, I was like, oh man, I don't like that. Was apparently there's a lot of UFO settings over water. Yes. Period. Yeah. yeah. And one of the one of the pieces, one of the eyewitnesses. Okay. During this Michigan thing, it was a couple that was camping by Lake Michigan in the middle of nowhere, and they looked at one of these orbs, and it was sucking water into a into a waterfall like into the sky and the fucking radar guy was like compared it with his notes and he's like yeah i i saw them loitering in that exact position at that exact time that they said this was happening at six thousand feet and i'm like i don't when i read that when i heard that i was just like i had chills i was like ufos are fucking real why are people talking about this more we got putin going after goddamn ukraine when we have like a potential UFO thing coming, like orbs going 50,000 miles per hour, bro. Putin needs to calm down so we can focus on yeah, uh, the UFOs. Jeez. <laughs> like, um, terrifying. Where, where can people listen to American terror? On Spotify. Uh, the first three episodes came out last week. The next three have come out yesterday morning and the last two will come out next Tuesday. So listen in. You're going to love it. Uh, Download, stream, share, and leave us a review. It's a really excellent podcast. If you're at all interested in this stuff and you really want to know kind of what's going on, here's some surprising stories, even for somebody that like uh, is super into this stuff and researches it like me. I'm hearing all sorts of different things. There's like, you bring up fucking John Todd. It's like nobody nobody knows who John Todd is. I know, and Carrie Noble, like, name-checks him. It's like, uh, a, a, as a guy who lives in South Carolina, uh, I know about John Todd. <laughs> for, oh, yeah. For some stupid reason. All right, uh, Cyber listeners, if you like us, please follow us on uh, Twitch and Motherboard. We're going live once a week there at twitch.tv forward slash Motherboard TV and youtube.com forward slash Motherboard. Uh, there will be one a little bit later this week that's going to be about killer robots, so be sure to check Hell in yeah. for that. Yeah, I'm very excited. It's going to be a good time. Ben Maku, the show is American Terror. Thank you so much for coming on to Cyber and talking us about talking to us about white nationalists. Well, thank you for having me. It's it's good to be back. It's good to have you back. Yeah, we need to do. <laughs> we need to come on and just talk about aliens. Oh, dude, I will do that anytime. I I read so much about aliens. You have no idea. It's weird. <laughs> Maybe that's going to be my thing. Let's get really into UFOs. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.